get your Bibles out, you can open them up to Acts chapter 17. Looking at verse 15, middle schoolers, join Johnny in the back. If you didn't uh, know that, Johnny's teaching a class back in the conference room for middle schoolers. And uh, Acts chapter 17, looking at verse 15. Very excited uh, to get into the latter part of chapter 17. I love the story of Paul in Athens. Um, such a great reasoner with philosophers. And we're going to kind of chip away at this over the next two weeks uh, to see uh, what Paul saw, what Paul felt, um, and then uh, next week what Paul did and said. And so looking forward to those, those four aspects of 15 and on here in chapter 17, a city under idolatry. And so let's look at verse 15. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So uh, the city of Athens is where we find ourselves now as we've been kind of trekking through Paul's second missionary journey. Um, Athens might be a little bit familiar to some of us. I think a couple years ago, the Winter Olympics was in Athens, you know, and, and there was just so, you know, some great camera footage by NBC, you know, figuring out uh, what the, the history was of that city as something crazy and modern was happening uh, with these modern day Olympics there. Athens was a capital city of the ancient Greek state of Attica. The Life Application New Testament commentary, it tells us that Athens with its magnificent buildings and many gods was a center for Greek culture, the center of philosophy and education. Philosophers and educated people were always ready to hear something new. Athens had been a political, educational, and philosophical center of the world in its prime, the home of such men as Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno. But that was 400 years before Paul's visit. When Paul arrived, it was a small town of about 10,000 people. Do you guys know of any small towns of about 10,000 people? Could you imagine if we were the Athens, you know, of uh, Western, the United States, you know, or something? I think we are. What do we have up on the hill? We have our own Acropolis, right? We have our own Mars Hill up on the hill here, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, but it was only about 10,000 people at the Paul of, of, uh, time of Paul's day, uh, and they were reliving the glory days. They were kind of the Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. You remember him? Like, oh, man just go back. I just, I know I could do it this time, you know, or what? And, uh, Athens was like, oh, kind of reliving the glory days, still had the intellectuals there and they were spending their days, what I like to call philosophizing, philosophizing, okay. Anybody here, you have enjoyed philosophy? Anybody here like through school, like three people, some of you, I knew you guys were going to raise your hands. I was like, if there's three guys here, it's going to be those three guys that probably like some philosophy. Never really took much of a philosophy class, you know. I appreciate Christian philosophers such as William Lane Craig and some of those kind of guys, the thinkers 
of uh, Christianity. And these were the thinkers of the world, but they were coming at ideas with a worldview, with a secular worldview. Uh, William Barclay says that Athens had long since left behind her great days of action, but she was still the greatest university town in the world to which men seeking learning came from all over. She was a city of many gods. It was said that there were more statues of gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together. And then this is a a quote you'll hear a lot in your studying of Athens. It was easier to meet a god than a man in Athens. So that's the city that we're going into in this missionary. Can you imagine going in a a journey for missions that uh, has something like that? Easier to meet a god than a man? Guess what? Nepal, uh, when you go there, you are reaching out to the Hindus, which have, you know, uh, just in the hundreds of thousands of gods, you know, um, in Buddhists, very similar. And so, you know, a very similar thing, you know, you're going to, no one really knows who they're worshiping there. Um, and so it's similar to Athens there. And in the great city square of Athens, people would gather to talk. And it's been said they did little else than talk in Athens. Talk became cheap in Athens, right? Um, it was like picking up pebbles there. And so uh, a- Athens in Paul's day was aesthetically and architecturally just magnificent. The, the buildings and the pillars and the carvings of the gods and the gold that was used and the granite that was used and just the artistic uh, flair that was there. It was a beautiful, beautiful city. Magnificent is the word. I was studying last night after all of our soccer tournaments, and I was just sitting in the living room. I can drain everything out, but uh, my kids were watching Charlotte's Web in the background. And, uh, you know, Charlotte, I didn't remember much about Charlotte's Web, except that they're, uh, you know, Charlotte is writing in her web words to describe Wilbur the pig, you know, and she's writing things like magnificent. And, you know, Templeton found a little newspaper scrap with a word like, I want to say ravicious, but that's probably, you know, know, just these great words to describe. And they're like, Rory, you should spend a week in Athens. It would probably be good for you. But magnificent, the magnificent, at the end, the word was humble, the humble little pig, you know. Um, But magnificent would be the word that Charlotte would write in her web concerning the architecture and just what you would see there. Um, It was philosophically sophisticated and at the same time, morally uh, corrupt, there was spiritual confusion, and there was spiritual deception. The great travel writer Thoreau wrote that when you go somewhere, it's not simply that you see things you haven't seen, but that you view things in a way that you've never viewed them before. Because the ability to be put in that new context draws out from you a new understanding of life. And so we're going to be put in a new context, something very different than anywhere Paul's been before in the next two weeks as we're in Athens. Now let's look at verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. So Paul is waiting for his missionary companions to join him there. He had kind of been rushed out of uh, northern Europe, uh, northern Macedonia, 
uh, because of persecution, and he left some of his buddies behind. And once he got down to Athens, he said, you guys can now hurry and get down here and be down here with me. So while he was waiting for them, an interesting thing happened. We see, first of all, what he felt, what he felt. His spirit was provoked within him. Some of the lexicon will help you out with just the the fact that he was stirred within his spirit or he was exasperated uh, within his spirit. That word exasperated, whenever I say it, I think of you have to let out a sigh when you say it and just kind of, you know, exasperated from what he saw around him because he saw the end of the verse says that the city was given over to idols. He had to let out a sigh. He was exasperated. One uh, context says that he was annoyed at all this idolatry. He was out of patience with all of this idolatry. We saw that in the last chapter when that demon-possessed slave girl followed him around, right? And as she was following him around and she was helping preach the gospel with that demon in her, the demon was helping, and he got greatly annoyed with the demon and rebuked the demon. Well, now Paul is greatly annoyed with the demonic idol worship that's happened. And that's what Paul tells the Corinthians about idolatry is that it's, it's worship of demons is what idolatry is. Now that's going to come in helpfully as we bring some life application to 2022 uh, Prineville and the idols that we have in our life. And if it really is just kind of a superficial issue that doesn't matter all that much. And Paul would say, well, idolatry is demon worship. Okay. And so he's annoyed. He's exasperated. He's distressed concerning the idolatry that he sees. And the language there for provoked in the Greek is paroxysm, hydrogen paroxysm. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Just paroxysm, which tells us that it, it wasn't like a superficial annoyance, but that it was a gut level reaction to the sin that he saw around him. The King James version says that it was a city that was, quote, wholly given over to idols for the dairy farmers out there. It was utterly idolatrous, okay? And we do have some. Some people from uh, the Astoria area have moved to town. Um, and so we, when we see that Satan has a foothold in people's lives, do we have that same, same exasperation? That an, an annoyance to see people that we love getting ripped off from the counterfeit deities that this world offers them. Now, Paul had been raised a good Jewish boy. He had been raised knowing the scripture, and he had been raised with his parents uh, speaking the Shema over him. Every day of his life, in the morning, in the evening, as they walked along the trail, his parents were Deuteronomy 6 parents, you know? Uh, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echud. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. And so when you know that there is one God who is worthy of the worship of the world, and then you come into a city that's utterly idolatrous, uh, your heart will be provoked uh, as well. Uh, Commentating on this verse, Matthew Henry wrote, His spirit was stirred within him. He was filled with concern for the glory of God, which he saw given over to idols and with compassion to the souls of men, which he saw thus enslaved to Satan and led captive by him at his will, he beheld these transgressors and was grieved and horror took hold of him. 
We had a, he had a holy indignation at the heathen priests that led the people on such an endless trace of idolatry and at their philosophers that knew better and yet never said a word against it, but themselves went down the stream. He was exasperated and greatly annoyed at their idolatry. The language here speaking of the idolatry of the town and that it was a city given over to idols. Also, this, this language speaks of that they weren't just in idolatry, but that they were under idolatry. They were being smothered by idols. They were being choked out. by. They were being suffocated by idolatry. And, and just Paul sees this in his spirit is grieved. This is a, a, an apostle who knew well the famous passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. You can flip there with me. Um, and uh, we don't have it in the words this morning. So if you want to flip over to Isaiah 44, 9 through 20, I love this passage because it just shows us how stupid idols are, how dumb idols are. Uh, Paul also calls idolatry dumb. You know, that they're given over to dumb idols. And when, and when you think about it, try to, as we read this, try to think about our idols in our life and how dumb they are, you know, and how it compares with what um, Isaiah is telling us here. Isaiah 44, 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They're their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? <clears throat> Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they're more, uh, they are mere men. Let them be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs, this is verse 12, Isaiah 44, 12. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals fashions it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he's hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that he may remain in the house. So you catching the process so far? These people have gods that they're going to worship and give their everything to spirit, mind, soul, body, finance, everything. And it all had its beginning with the dude going out and making it happen, right? Uh, he, gets, he gets his ca uh, carpentry instruments and tools and builds this thing or fashions this thing or heats this thing up and hammers it out. And the whole time, the, the matter is just <laughs> being shaped into something that this guy can, you know, being sawed, you know, being sawed by the dude that's going to be worshiping it. So really, who's the master so far in the story, right? Uh, going on, it uh, says, verse 14, he cuts down cedars for himself, and he takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. So we have um, election and sovereignty and predestination on man's part towards the God, right? And uh, so he picks the tree out of the forest, he plants the pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. 
Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. And did he, indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, a carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. They do not know nor understand for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is their knowledge nor understanding to say, I burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? You guys catch that? You guys are educated enough to be able to see that this guy, just, he's in total control of this dumb block of wood. You know, carves something out, figure of a man, sets it up, you know, something happens in the house, the kids throw a ball, you know, or a gust of wind comes in, and the drapes blow and knock it over, and they walk in, just similar to the Samuels, you know, and the Dagon, the fish god, falling over before the altar of the Lord. Oh, we better pick this thing back up. You know, it's, it's so powerful, it can totally set itself back up, right? And so these are dumb idols, and, and every form of our dumb idols seeks to make God serve man, to make him manageable and usable. And in our own hearts, we raise up things that we want to serve us. We want to conform to our worldview of morality and our end game and our end goal and our own glory. And so we raise up these different things that are going to maybe satisfy what we want because God's ways and God's view of the world and where we came from and where we're going and how we're going to get there. It doesn't match what we want to fulfill our own desires and glories and vain glories, I should say. We try to make God manageable and usable from our point of view. Now, every now and then you have a guy that's pretty honest, like the great uh, atheist Aldous Huxley in his book, A Brave New World, when he said, for myself, no doubt, as for many of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We rejected a system of morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Did you catch that? So for me as an atheist and all of my contemporaries, we... we said no god the fool in his heart says no god or there is no god and we said no to god because frankly he was cramping our style especially in in the sexual department you know and so but if we're atheists and there's no accountability and no god that we're going to going to give an account to there's no day of reckoning if we can deceive ourselves to go in that direction then life's a lot more pleasant and life's a lot more fun to which the Christian who knows the Bible would say, for a season, right? For a season. We don't want to hear about a God to whom we'll be accountable. A God who has established life and, and accountability and norms. To believe in God is a huge inconvenience to us. 
And some application to us is that we might be saying, we don't know anything about formed idols. I don't know anything about formed idols. I remember talking to uh, a relative of mine, just a sweet old man. And as we were talking about idolatry in our day and Christians and the temptation to navigate towards idolatry, and he just wasn't processing. To him, everything was... It was just, well, I don't bow down to any golden image. And it was like, okay, got to just pivot, all right? Pivot a little bit, okay? And if you can maybe pivot today as well, you may not know about the structures of idolatry, but we all know about the nature of idolatry. It's been said that an idol is turning a gift from God into a God, lowercase g, okay? We take something that God has given us that would help promote worship towards him and help advance his glory in this world and point others towards him and, and um, give us refreshment in the race that we're in without distracting us from the race. And we take that gift and instead we start to worship it as the end in and of itself One man said it's turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. Another definition of it is that it is deifying something we were given simply to enjoy into worship. Okay, so we're deifying something we were given uh, to enjoy and we begin to worship it. If you've ever read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, when I got married um, on our honeymoon, we drove from Klamath Falls down to Redding, California for a honeymoon on Lake Shasta on a houseboat. And we stopped at Borders Bookstore and we were getting some reading material. And me, being the intellectual you know me to be, decided to buy the three pack of C.S. Lewis books on the shelf. You know, Mere Christianity, the Scroop Tape Letters, and I don't even remember what the third one was. I know it wasn't the Chronicles of Narnia because that's more than one book. So, you know, besides I only watch the movies. But anyways, uh, so I got the Screw Tape Letters, you know, and by the way, Mere Christianity, okay, um, read and reread and reread paragraphs, you know, just to kind of get the point of it. But there is on YouTube a drawn out version, like drawings. Like, do you need me to draw it out for you? Yes. Okay, go on YouTube and look at the drawn-out versions of Miriam. Okay, but screw tape letters. Now, oh, screw tape letters. That'll be an easy read, right? It's only a demon who is speaking to his nephew and telling his nephew how he can deceive Christians and do better at his mission of deceiving. Well, that is a really hard read because all of a sudden you're reading from the demon's point of view about the enemy and you're cheering for the demon. You're like, yeah, get him! Like, no, 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 no. Okay, no, demon, the demon's the bad guy, and the enemy is the good guys. Okay, so if you can't handle a, a reversal of psychology, don't read that book either, okay? But, you know, I'm so confused right now. Yeah, try reading it, okay? Okay, now, in the Screwtape letters, the nephew of Screwtape is going uh, against the enemy, and Screwtape says one of the ways we can get these people is to encourage them to take good things that uh, our enemy has given them and to take them at the wrong times or at the wrong quantity, which is a pretty clever battle tactic, you know, espionage, if you think about it, okay? So when you think about it, sex, which is something that is good, 
our sinful nature has twisted it. It's become a monstrosity. We've perverted what God has given us that is something that is good and to be enjoyed. And it's become um, just something that is completely abused and not used properly. In so many ways that the word fornication is used to describe that. And fornication is simply kind of like, anybody have a junk drawer in their kitchen? Just where It's a catch-all, just like anything and everything goes in this junk drawer. Well, that's what fornication is. It's like everything that you could think of that is sex outside of marriage goes in the junk drawer of fornication. Because we're perverse enough that if it's not listed in the junk drawer, then we're going to go try to do it. It's like, no, no, no. Just everything that's not within the confines and the beauty and the design of the marriage bed, it's in the junk drawer. It's junk. Okay? And so we have made an idol out of sex with fornication. Food. Ah, given for us to enjoy. As we've already read in Acts that God has given us food and filled our belly that we could have gladness, gladness at him and his provision, and we would worship the one who's provided a good harvest, right? And then, and yet, full bellies can be abused into idolatry, making it um, gluttony, right? Um, I know that well myself. Love to eat, right? Um, too much, that would be the thing, too much. I abuse eating, okay? Um, <clears throat> or work, something that's great. It's something that one man said, is a privilege to expend ourselves in endeavors. Even God is a worker. He's a creator. This was before sin that he worked so hard he needed to rest, right? Work is a good thing. And yet it becomes a God in and of itself. We live for our career. We live to get it done or we live to just that I'm a hard worker and I've got to fill that void in my life. So much so that many of our children say, I wish my father would come home once in a while. Never see him, never know him. He never was a dad. And uh, to, to us, work seems like an idol to him. He seems to love work more than he loves us. Or rest can become, it's wonderful, rest is good, right? Yet it can become slothfulness and laziness, okay? So as you kind of see, just good things that are gifts become ultimate things, and that's a bad thing. It was, uh, I believe, John Calvin that said, uh, the human heart is an idol factory, right? We're just spitting out idols, right? Just everything that the Lord gives us is something good. We can abuse that. And just think about that. Uh, you know, I think of running. Running is a good thing. And I'm just grieved when I see the pork run club on Sundays and people that I used to know come to church and they run on, and I see all the Facebook posts, run, you know, Run day, Sunday, Sunday, fun day, fun day, run day, or whatever it is, you know, and it's like, what about the Lord's day? What about when Christians used to have a value for gathering and worshiping in concentrated form and in, in the, the value of the Lord's day? Sunday's the Lord's day. You read about that in the book of Revelation. John the Revelator was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I believe Christians ought to have a value for Sundays and keeping it holy all right, so run, you know, running, running's good, but it can become a God. Gardening, never good, boring. No, just kidding. Gardening, good. And I just, I'm just thinking of things that I just remember being pricked in my heart when I would see people that I knew once would be here and then they're just, Facebook just is like a window into the soul of men, right? And it's just like, oh, so apparently gardening is, is their God now. And they're going to grow up a beanstalk and they're going to cut the beanstalk down and they're going to go in there. 
They're going to cook some of the beans, and then the rest of the beans are going to, I don't know. You know you're, it's, it's all dumb, right? You know, everything that we love, you guys, can be abused and turned into an idol, all right? And so is your spirit provoked you like Paul's when you see this? And I think every one of us could list off a hundred items in rapid succession of the things that are good and healthy and can be proper and can be profitable. And, and yet we could list them in our lives and in our friends' lives and our loved ones' lives and our community's lives. And they are the things that have been twisted. And now people's hearts have been turned away from the Lord. Can you think of some, you guys got anything in your mind? Don't even really need to list it. It's like name something and that can be it. Okay, so our hearts ought to not, ju- not just be like, well, whatever. We ought to have a grieved heart like Paul's and begin to address the idolatry and confront it with the gospel and show that we have become Romans chapter one and we have de-godded God and we've exchanged the glory for the incorruptible God and we've begun to worship the created thing rather than the creator who's eternally blessed forever. Amen? All right. So, like Lot, we should have, as Peter says in 2 Peter, we ought to be vexed with the filthy lifestyle of the wicked. And in verse 17 of our text, it says, because of this, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So he was provoked within him. He was stirred and exasperated because of all of the idolatry that was suffocating the Athenians. So the word therefore is there in verse 17 to tell us that he did something with that exasperation. He went and he began preaching. And he did what we already know his custom was, going into the synagogue. That's nothing new. We've read that many times in the book of Acts. He would go speak to the Jews who ought to know better that maybe were dabbling in that. He went into the synagogue that had at least 10 Jewish men. He's there in Europe, and he's preaching to them and preaching against idolatry. He was able to culturally relate with the tradition and the lifestyles uh, of the the Jews. And, And so he would preach to them. And then he also went into the marketplace. I appreciate this and I love this about Paul's Athens ministry. This marketplace, it was a center for public and social interaction within the city. It was kind of like the Twitter of its day, right? It's where all the people were. John MacArthur Jr. writes that the marketplace in Athens was called the Agora, okay? It was the hub of all activity in Athens, it was situated at the southern end of the ancient city. City. It stood in the shadow of the big hill called the Areopagus. And next week, we'll have pictures of these things. Um, looming in the southeast was the great Acropolis. It was this high point of Athens where the most spectacular temples were situated, including what was called the Parthenon, a magnificent marble structure that was already 500 years old by the time Paul saw it. So just it's an incredible architectural setting for Paul's preaching to happen there in the marketplace, surrounded by the great buildings and the great mountains and the rocky outcroppings and something like a Prineville in that when you come to Prineville and you look around, you just see the beautiful buttes and the beautiful mesas and the great uh, just geo, uh, geological outcroppings around here. Uh, 
I like that, I think it was MacArthur that also said, the Agora was a large courtyard in the midst of all the civic buildings. There, under a large columnade, people would set up little shops and booths. So think of Athens, but then think of Prineville, okay? And, and where is there similarities, okay? Vendors would peddle their wares. Farmers brought produce and cattle to sell. Tradesmen would be there to ply their services. As always a busy place, it was always a busy place. A modern equivalent, well, he's going to help us with this, might be a town square, the central um, area of a city mall. Anybody been to a mall in the last 15 years? Do they have those anymore? Uh, In the middle of the marketplace, philosophers would congregate and vie with one another for people's attentions. This is a new word to me. Peripatetic. Peripatetic. It's a real word. Teachers in the tradition of Aristotle, specialists in the healing arts, magicians, hucksters, and street performers of all kinds had a forum where they could work the crowds. And so, you know, if you've ever been to the big city, if you've ever been to downtown, if you've ever been down by Fisherman's Wharf, you know, or if you've ever been to, you know, the, the Rose Quarter, whatever it might be, you know, the places where the booths were, the vendors were, the performers were, and then something that sometimes the thinkers are, maybe a soapbox to stand on or something like that, right? Someone, and so Paul would go there. Paul would go where people were gathered around doing stuff, a little bit of downtime, a little bit of time for conversation. Someone once said, if you want to have a good day fishing, go where the fish are, all right? So a fisher of men want to be where the people are. It's almost backwards when you think of the little mermaid and her heart's desire. She was a fish who wanted to be where the people were, right? It's been 30 years since you've seen the movie. Me too, me too, okay? And so the application for us is go to the synagogues, go to the marketplaces, go to the places where uh, there are people. Want to be where the people are. Now, those of you that are introverts, this is gonna be a stretch for you, right? You're gonna need the Holy Spirit to kind of bump you out of that circle for a little bit so that you can go and be a part of the Great Commission. And something that will fuel that is more than obedience and wanting to obey and wanting to obey the Great Commission, but it's, it's something that we call zeal. Zeal will be a great motivator for you. When you have a zeal for the glory of God, you see, Paul was, Paul was exasperated and annoyed Not just because there were a lot of idols, like it was too much, you know, not even just because a lot of people were going to hell and they were being deceived. That's a good reason as well. But Paul was jealous for the glory of the Lord. He knew that God, at the end of the day, the ultimate thing was that God was worthy of worship as the great creator of the universe, that he had creator rights over human hearts and that he had designed human hearts to be pointed towards him as worshipers and as followers and that they would display his glory throughout the world and and knowing that satan had had his victory in the heart of the athenians made paul angry and jealous for god's glory and so part of his motivation 
was wanting God to receive the praise that was due to his name by every heart, by every tongue, by every mind, by every soul. And so he would go to where the people were. He busted out of his introvert zone if he was an introvert. And he thrived in his extrovertness if he was an extrovert to get out there and to go to where the people were. And for you, I would encourage you to pray about where God has made you fit in culturally and to go to those people to shine like a light for the gospel. Think about where the people are well, where you have a bit of an in and go to reason with them about the idolatry in their life and the repentance that's needed because there will be a day where there will be a reckoning. And so for me, these are things like the soccer field, you know, started out that I had just played soccer as an elementary school and a middle school kid. And then I had kids of my own and now there's a need for soccer players. And I started coaching. And as much as I love being a coach for my kids and spending that time with them for the last, I think 11, 12 years or something, my coaching has not just been to be with my kids or to teach, you know, athletic, you know, principles that are good for the body, but that there are people there that need Jesus. So every practice, every game, and I don't always do it well, you guys, but my heart is that I get opportunity to share Jesus with people. And in the midst of that, I've had parents dying of cancer who've invited me into their home to give them the hope of heaven and to share the hope of heaven. I've had kids that are in foster care, have their grandparents taking care of them, reach out to me to be praying for them and to help minister to their little hearts as we're alongside the field. And I've, I've wept and I've gone for walks, even recently, with little foster kids that are angry and mad because of all the pain that is going on in their life. And it's just, I'm just a soccer coach, right? I'm here to kick the ball into the net. That is what it is all about. That's not what it's all about. And wherever you're at and whatever you're doing, whatever it is you're doing, digging a hole, it's not about the hole. It's about the person with you that one day will be in a hole, right? We can go on the rabbit trail with that, right? All right. And so looking for those, look, I want to be where the people are. I want to open my mouth. I'm here. I'm here, Lord. Sometimes we don't do it totally well, man. I woke up at 1230 last night, got a little cold going on. Just immediately I heard myself yelling on the soccer field at my daughter who wasn't listening to her coach. And I could just hear the way I was yelling, you know, got all the community watching me in my finals play the U15 girls championship game. We won, by the way, in case you're wondering, but you know, it doesn't, okay, doesn't matter. And you know what? It, It woke up last night and I could just hear myself and see my daughter looking at me just like, right? And then the Lord, I don't know if it was the Lord, you know, probably right midnight was like, I hope it was worth it. I hope it was worth it. It was. Um, got a little, little gold soccer ball. Real gold. Says on, says on the bottom. Well, it says it was made in China. So I assume it's real gold. Okay, just kidding. But, but uh, you know, or just the ranching ministry, you know? And it's just like, hey, there's people that I might, you know, J- Paul had the Jews were his, he would go to hell if it meant the Jews coming to know the Savior, the Messiah. And I just feel like, man, I don't know that I'm there, but you know, I want to be there. I would go to hell if my fellow farmer, rancher, just, you know, my people, 
if they could come to know Jesus and turn from the idolatry of the ranch, the farm, or even just that red-blooded American, like, that's my idolatry, that's where, you know, whatever, turning away from all of that and coming to Jesus. Like, that, that's my heart. And so, oh, Polina Rodeo, that's where the people are. That's all the people that we're trying to get out and reach out to through the ranching ministry, and we're riding alongside, and we're roping alongside, and we're vaccinating alongside, and then they all come together for one weekend right here in this spot. I will become a fool to all men. I will get a miniature donkey. I will cut construction paper. I will write words. I will make pancakes. I will do whatever it takes to get, I will learn country music songs and change the lyrics a little to make them Christian so that people will come around and hear about Jesus. Okay. And so what are you doing? Okay. I'm, I'm a pastor. I could sit in this office every day of the week and sit there and answer emails and, you know, make sure that the thermostat has electricity so that we have heat on a Sunday morning, which we're working on it. I could do that all week, but that's what the Lord's like. I don't want you in the office. It's not where you, my office here. Here it is right here. Like you can kind of get a hold of me on this bad boy, right? But what are you doing? All right. You are a fill in the blank, but you're going to the fill in the blank where the people are at. And you're becoming a fool to all men that they might hear the gospel, that perhaps you might win some souls to Jesus. What are you doing? Feel like a total idiot sometimes doing it. And you know what? That's who the Lord uses. That's how the Lord gets the glory. All right? So I encourage you guys, go to where the Lord will help you fit in culturally to reason daily with all those. And then there's this great word in verse 17, with all those who happen to be there. What's your testimony? Where did you hear about Jesus? And would you say when you heard about Jesus that this word or this little phrase fits in for you? Like, I just was going along and I happened to be there when Ray Comfort was out on the beach open air preaching the gospel. And I turned and I listened and the spirit of God convicted me of my sin and my need for a savior that I will be held accountable for my sin one day. But Jesus came and paid it all that I could have my sins washed away and be forgiven and have the hope of heaven for all eternity. And now I've been given a mission in my life. Like I just happened to be there. That's a story for every single one of us, isn't it? We just happened to be where the preacher was. My friend invited me. I stumbled into the joint. You know what? And, and people happen to be wherever it is that you're sharing the gospel that day. Isn't that crazy? And we were in the workroom at the copy machine, just pushing it. And I happened to be there this week was preg checking cattle with a man who happened to be there and got to tell my testimony of God's faithfulness in my life and how he miraculously healed my dad of cancer. And this guy looked at me and he says, well, that's why you became a pastor. And I said, yeah. And then he says, I never told anybody this. And, and he opens up his story of some painful things in his life. And we just feel the notches ratcheting that, that are drawing this guy to the Lord. Okay? So just, they happen to be there. They happen to be at the dance class. I'm looking around the room. They happen to be up at Facebook, putting the, running the Ethernet cable. You know, They happen to be at the gym on the stair machine next to you right? They just happen to be there. We just happen to be at the dumbbells at the same time, all right? We just happen to have a flat tire on the side of the road, and I, and I pulled over, and I got to share with them. You know, you catching the drift? We all know that in God's sovereignty, they didn't just happen to be there. God brought them there for such a time as this. I had a dream this week that uh, 
One Sunday we showed up and the church quadrupled in size. And it, it was second service that it had quadrupled in size. First service was full. I go 30 minutes over in my sermon. <laughs> and second service was waiting outside quadrupled in size. I will never do that again. We won't go 30 minutes over. Okay. But uh, we're just going through verse 20 here. Verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So we've got these two different types of people that are hearing about the message that Paul preached. Two different types of philosophers, I should say. The Epicureans and the Stoics. They had these two schools of Greek philosophy that stood in extreme opposite ends from one another in their belief systems. The Epicureans said, enjoy life. And the Stoics said, endure it. (laughs) Endure life. The Epicurean philosophers were followers of Epicurus, who died in 270 BC. They were materialists and atheists and believed that the chief purpose of living was pleasure and happiness. At the risk of oversimplifying it, we can think of it in terms of a preoccupation that there was just chance. It was just a roll of a dice, indulgence, had a bit of a let the good times roll mixed with a we got to get out of this place if it's the last thing we ever do type of a mentality. Epicureans believe that life was a random collection of atoms and that human was just a gigantic big blob of molecules held in suspension. There's nothing after death. When you're gone, you're gone. And there's no possibility of judgment that needed to be feared. If you read Shakespeare's Macbeth in the soliloquy, the poem is, Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's Epicurean philosophy by Shakespeare. So really encouraging though, isn't it? Like they should make some bumper stickers or maybe we could get the t-shirt machine out and put that on there, you know? Uh, To some pleasure meant pleasure that was grossly physical, but to others of the Epicureans, it meant a life of refined serenity, free from pain and anxiety. And, uh, And so basically the true Epicurean avoided extremes to enjoy life by keeping things in balance, but pleasure was still the number one goal. The Epicurean philosophers were known as the philosophers of the garden, okay? And then we have the Stoic philosophers who were the philosophers of the porch, followers of Zeno. Stoic means porch, and it was taken from the porch that he stepped on as he would speak his philosophy. They were the philosophers of the stiff upper lip, or we'll get through it all, but you've just got to endure it. And, uh, poem by Henley as we have the worship team come up. Henley's poem says, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. 
So Henley, a poet, a philosopher who wrote that to whatever gods may be, I'm the captain of my own soul, he shows that through his suicidal death that his philosophy didn't have the answer that his soul was craving and it didn't answer the chief end of man's desire of where did we come from, where are we going, and how do we get there? And to these philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, their philosophy wasn't cutting it. Because in just a little bit, we're going to see that they want to hear more from Paul on this matter, the matter of a resurrected God, these strange things that they were hearing. And if their philosophy was sufficient, they wouldn't have sought another. They wouldn't have sought another meeting uh, with Paul. And so these Stoics who would follow their own reason and try to be self-sufficient, unmoved typically by inward feeling towards outer circumstances, they're stirred up by Paul uh, in his preaching. And they said, what does this babbler say? And it, this babbler means he's, he's bird-brained in a sense in that he's a seed picker. He picks up random thoughts and he's come to our town or to our city speaking this thing that seems like a hodgepodge of things, not really an original thought of any of them. And we'll see the original thought come next week when he preaches to them the resurrection from the dead. That's an original thought that's going to rock their world. But right now they just think of him as a bit of a crazy guy going through town peddling new and crazy ideas. Uh, and so in verse 19, they take him and they bring him to the Areopagus. That sounds bad, uh, like he's been in prison so many times, but it's actually a good thing. It's an honor. He's being taken to um, basically the Supreme Court up on the hill where the great thoughts will be heard. And, uh, and we're going to get into that uh, next week. And so if you want to set your things aside, so much there, I know. And so, Lord, we come before you with so much here in this text and understanding the city of Athens and the what Paul calls vain philosophy of men. They're vain. It's, it's worthless ideas. Just trying to, trying to reason through it all and deal with it all, but with um, arm's length reckoning. And Lord, even in our community, there's similar ideas, similar philosophies. We hear them in, we know that they're modern and used in modern day as well just through the music that we listen to and the poems that are written the lyrics of um, just the thinkers and the, the tweets that are posted on social media and then they make their way out into the thoughts of our neighbors as we're talking to them by the mailbox or by the trash cans and Lord we have people around us that they're just wondering What's the meaning of it all? Think of talking to Russell about the veterans and 20, 20, 20 veterans die every day from suicide just going through the pain that they've gone through and seeing the things they've seen and doing the things they've done and, and just not having anything more than a philosophy that it doesn't tell them who, where, when, why doesn't answer these things, the difficult things of life. and We know that that's true in our circles and maybe even in our own hearts. And, and Lord, as we just put a to be continued on this study for next week, 
We pray that already, Lord, we would just be here and the strange new things enter into our hearts. Some people even come into Calvary or newer to Calvary and they're hearing that, that they have taken something good that's a gift from you. It's something that's it's going to make them stronger or it's going um, to bless their family to, to endure through the times or it's something that's to help them rest or something like that and they have taken it and they have made too much of it. They've made an idol out of that good thing. And it's stealing them from you. It's robbing them from you. And they've become almost another person because of it. And even today, Lord, you would draw them back and away from dumb idols that they could once again serve the living God. Lord, through the gospel, would you deal with those issues in our heart? Of where did we come from? Stir up in us again today the, the love that we have had a creator create us with intentional thought in his own image for the purpose of multiplying throughout the world and spreading his glory and his story. Lord, that we would, through the gospel, have the hope of where are we going Lord, that there will be a day when you're coming back to this place and you're going to bring us with you and we're going to rule and reign with you for a thousand years, Lord. We'll, we'll have a part in that and you over us as our king, God. Lord, that we would look to that day where heaven comes to earth, where we spend eternity in paradise with you, Lord. And through the gospel, Lord, answer our questions of How are we going to get there? Not by earthly confidence. Not by vain philosophy. Not by the labor of our hands can fill the law's demands, but by the grace of God. By the sacrifice of Jesus. By the victory of an empty grave. By the power of the Spirit. Do that in us, Lord. Let's all stand together. Let's worship the Lord with this hope of a living God. Go ahead, Clay. Maybe just right now with heads bowed and eyes closed, just as the Lord has just put his finger on dumb idols in our life, things that are good that he's given us as gifts and things that rightly used are profitable or or have a good thing a, a good um something profitable about them but we have taken them and uh just sin in us has twisted them to be something that's stolen our heart away from the lord just today maybe just with our heads bowed eyes closed maybe let's just lift our hands up just in a posture of relinquishment and just a posture of let's give those things back over to the Lord and maybe they're maybe they're actually something that's not good they're things that no the Lord never even gave us that it's something that it's just there's some wicked stuff going on that holds us and has a throne in our heart and we need to just topple that throne over we need to let the Lord do that today we can give that over to the Lord and just give him the victory over that idol in our life just one more time we're going to sing of what he has done.
the ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. His perfect love cannot be overcome. And we're going to sing the chorus one more time. Forever he is glorified. Just as we sing the, the bridge and the chorus one last time, let's just, we're just pushing, uh, pushing away from us just the idolatrous heart that we've had. And we're even saying to the Lord, Lord, take this person away from me. Take this stuff away from me. Lord, if, if it's not going to be able to be used in a healthy way in my life with proper use, then just take it away. Take my desire away. Give me the Holy Spirit to know how to just mortify it and get it out, Lord. I just give it over to you. It's, it's yours now, Lord. And he can help in some of these things. Just like, no, it, it's good. I have given it to you. You just have lost like focus of kind of the end goal with it. And you've made it the main thing. It's not going to be supposed to be the main thing. It's supposed to be an avenue to, to get us to the main thing of me being glorified in your life and, and having the chief place of your heart and you enjoying relationship with me. And so let's just, in this final bit, let's give it over to the Lord. Let's let him have those idols and let's put him back up in the chief place of our heart. One last time, Clay, and we'll close with that. Amen. We'll close there uh, this morning. God bless you guys. Stick around for some fireside fellowship time. It's already starting in the fireside room. So grab your kiddos and come grab a donut and say hi to one another. God bless you guys. Have a great Sunday.